Hey John, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to share a little bit about what I've been up to and and answer some questions and have some fun. Um so I was looking into your background and as part of the research for this conversation and you've done so many things in your career. Uh it's almost like confusing to me to where to get started with, but it's also a good thing because we have a lot of shared interests I think. I think the conversation is going to be fun. Uh but just to give a little bit introduction to the audience uh can you talk a little bit about you know your early education and your early career Absolutely I uh as I always start off with I grew up in Omaha Nebraska which was a big part of who I am today and I refer back to it often and think back to it often as a place that was a very free place to grow up as a kid and would run around the neighborhood and didn't have a lot of restriction and could be creative and and pursue our creativity side and have a lot of friends and it just it was a very Mayberry RFD kind of experience growing up and my parents were were really encouraging of us trying things and i think that has been a big part of my life throughout and I did decide for college to basically try and go as far away from Omaha as I could so I looked on the east coast and I looked on the west coast and ended up in Palo Alto at Stanford and again super incredible time of my life where I got to just try a lot of things and explore and created a great set of friends and rich experiences and uh it's funny I've always been a person who says I haven't done that before I think I should go try that um and so after college I ended up saying I'd never lived in the south so I went down to Dallas and I did real estate down there and my family's been involved in real estate for a long time and my brother is very active in real estate my father was uh a really a leading edge developer of apartments in Nebraska. So we've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial dinner table conversation orientation if you will. And uh, after that I went back to Stanford and um well actually right after that I also spent time in Asia because I'd never done Asia and I thought oh that would be really interesting and I learned some Chinese and I did some volunteer work which is always important to me. Then I went back to business school and from there I was so lucky to be exposed to technology and venture capital and again more entrepreneurship and I think th- those pieces that I've just described to you are very much the foundation of the path I took. How how did uh because you didn't you did your undergraduation then you did your asian studies and then you did your mba at stanford yeah how did how did stanford ended up shaping you well stanford at the time was really uh an incredible college experience and on the leading edge of what a college experience meant i think they encourage you to think about things differently the amount of uh support around developing your own major or having access to access to resources or just being in the bay area silicon valley even though back then it was very nascent was still influential and 
I loved, the thing I loved about Stanford, it was a incredible mix of work and play and people who cared about you and supported you in whatever dream you wanted to carry out. And so it's really, I have to say, formed my way of thinking of how I want to be in the world, how I want to support my family, how I want to support uh, entrepreneurs, uh, how I want to pursue my career. Because I was always told, yeah, why not go try that? Why not do things a little bit differently? Why not explore? And so I think for me, Stanford really played an influential role there. And just being around, I was inspired. I mean, part of the most important thing to me in life is inspiration. And I'm constantly trying to reach out to people who can inspire me, read books, listen to podcasts. And Stanford had that in spades. And I took full advantage of that when I was there. So that's, I think that's really how it set the foundation for me. And post Stanford, how did your career start? Yeah, so I was pretty darn sure that I was either going to do real estate uh, because of the family connection, uh, which I felt was quite entrepreneurial, or I was going to do venture capital. And venture capital back then was pretty darn new. In fact, when I said venture capital people, they looked at me like, what's that? Which is kind of funny. And when I say that today, everyone smiles because it's so much part of our world. And everyone knows what venture capital is, right? But back then, nobody did. And I've always been a person attracted to, if everybody's going right, I'm going to go left. If there's a parade, I'm going to go around it. And so, and venture capital seemed to have everything that one would ever want to do in life. It was an opportunity to be entrepreneurial. It was an interesting asset class from a return standpoint. It was on the leading edge of technology. It was changing the world. I got to meet with really smart people, smarter than me, and learn every single day. And th there's a bit of a journalist in me. I was a journalist in uh, college. I was an editor of one of the papers. I was on my high school yearbook. And so for me, asking questions, learning about other people, you know, it's, it's, I've always thought I should do a podcast because I love what you do. And, and it's just a great opportunity to, everybody has a great story, right? And you combine that great story in the case of venture capital with someone pursuing a dream, thinking up a new way of doing things and changing the world, what could be better? And so I, I thought, okay, coming out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do either real estate or venture capital. And then along comes this guy and says to me, well, you know, have you ever been to Seattle? And I never had actually. And remember from what I've already said to you, I like to go where I haven't before, whether it's Asia or Dallas or East Coast or West Coast. And he said, there's a little company called Microsoft that I'm involved with. And would you like to just, we'll fly you up. Why don't you come interview? And I thought, okay, it's see Seattle. Why not go do that? And it was the most grueling set of interviews I'd ever experienced. And some people would take that and think, oh my gosh, this is painful. It was the exact opposite for me. Every conversation was super exciting. They were presenting real life case studies, what the things they were working on, how would I approach it, how to think about it. And for me, that actually cemented the deal. I went in a direction I didn't think I was going to do. It 
neither it wasn't real estate and it wasn't venture capital but because the people inspired me that's where i went and maybe there's a lesson there if you can find great people to be around people that you feel like are smarter than you that you can learn from that can inspire you maybe that's the way to pick out a job for me it was anyway and it served me really really well this this was late 80s and early Correct. 90s right yeah so what was it don't, like don't bring that up it sounds like i'm a dinosaur well what was it like to work for microsoft back then so exciting i i honestly you, you know people younger people today if i say this probably think i'm little cuckoo but i think we thought we were changing the world i mean the tenacity and the uh excitement that everyone felt coming to work was palpable we all really were clear about the marching orders back then bill said a pc on every desk in every home and uh we believed it we 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 felt like this thing called a computer this personal computer was the most important thing that was going to change the world now because they're ubiquitous today and actually our phone is more our computer in some ways maybe we look back on that time and say yeah yeah whatever it was going to happen but at the time you know i had a cot in my office i slept in my office and it's funny to me to hear people who work at some of the larger tech companies today who say oh yeah my bosses don't work so hard or you know they're getting all this the the benefits massages and you know their nails done and and free food and i'm thinking to myself really or is that the right way to build this hardcore going to take the world by storm company maybe it's just a different world for sure but back then we all thought we were in the trenches together doing doing something that was truly different unique and um it was going to be part of our legacy and it was just exciting and honestly the people there were so smart and and what was also interesting it's the way microsoft hired back then and and that taught me something microsoft hired not for experience cuz who who had experience in startups or tech companies or just weren't that many right they hired yeah. people who were tenacious and were smart right and were independent thinkers and didn't mind having someone say to them no you're wrong and see if people could respond to that yeah and and so it was just it was such a special time and i feel like i sat on the front row of the world changing and had a great seat and got to be part of it so that's what it was like amazing and then you uh went on to work at AOL and started your own company yeah so i did after microsoft i you know i lasted i say i lasted 5 years i'm not a big company person i knew that um but but it was great as i said but i knew i the venture thing was still something i thought about and so i left and started really small in actually finding deals and presenting them as one offs a little bit like the angel list syndicates today if you will yeah um but back then there was no such thing of course and so i would have to have these gatherings you know that's a that's a theme of my life getting people together i've done that for 30 plus years and i would present a deal and maybe i'd get a few investors and it started building up and that led to some people saying to me why don't you just do a fund 
don't keep coming back to us every time. We get what you're doing. And that led to the creation of sort of what I'll call Steinberg Ventures 1 and Steinberg Ventures 2. Um, and my whole premise back then was connecting Seattle and San Francisco, Seattle and Silicon Valley, which is to say Microsoft with the startups there, because Microsoft at that time was the big player and people were always nervous if they were going to start a company, what was Microsoft doing? Or was there a way to partner with Microsoft? It's funny again, today people don't think that way as much, of course. Um, but back then it was a, I called it, I'm the bridge, the bridge between the two important regions. And, and it worked out great because it allowed me as a small fund, small investor to get into some deals where people said, yes, we, we would like you to be part of this. You can kind of make sure we've got that piece covered as part of your value add. And so I always try and think, what's my unique differentiator? What's my value add? if I'm going to take something on. And, and so that's how I positioned myself uh, and had a great run. And uh, gosh, we did, uh, as I said, two funds. And then I became part of a larger fund in LA called Rustic Canyon Partners. And, and the whole time, again, it was just uh, this marvelous front row seat into the world changing. Um, I, I was checking you know, how many deals you're part of. I think you're approximately part of 200 deals. I think it might it, be more. It, it might, might be, be more. more. I'm not sure that's a badge of honor, uh, but but uh, I have been quite active. And you know the the nature of venture, right? It's you, you hope that you get the the outsized return one to cover for a lot of mistakes. And um, but but I also you know it's funny. I don't say this publicly very often, but. Part of why I want to do this is because I feel like I'm supporting entrepreneurship and the ecosystem and nothing makes me happier. Of course, I love it when the outcome is great for me, but nothing makes me happier than to see an entrepreneur, blood, sweat and tears succeed. So for me, it's it's an, an odd way of sort of giving back. I don't want to make it sound like I'm holier than now, but I just... It, for me, it's it's really important to support the entrepreneurs in this country uh, and to be part of that. I get a lot of excitement when they succeed and if I can be helpful in that process in any way. So I have I've been quite active both as a as a fund manager, as a GP, but also as an angel investor. So, uh, I mean, you've been part of some iconic company deals, I think, right? Uh, DocuSign, StubHub. Splunk, Automatic, uh, which is uh, the company behind WordPress, yep. um, and Avalara. Uh, so, what what was your biggest, uh, you know, exit sort of uh, company, uh, in either the fund or individually? Yeah, I've been I've been lucky to have a few good ones for sure. Um, the one that I think I really didn't have a lot to do with, but was just. It was just uh, a good example of being at the right place at the right time and creating friendships. Uh, may have been uh, Seagate, actually. Mm. Um, there was a little, back then, there was a little private equity company called Silver Lake, which wasn't actually little at all, but, but it was doing something others hadn't done before. And a couple of the GPs were friends of mine. And I just always think it's funny to think back to that 
capitalization table where it was a it was basically taking Seagate private to take them public later in a very incredibly creative financial uh, move as well as allowing this company not to have to deal with public market quarter by quarter and actually grow this business to bring it back out later and to split off part its pieces and etc cetera, etc cetera. but anyway the point is um, the cap table was something like Silver Lake, I don't remember the exact numbers, had hundreds of millions of dollars invested. Goldman Sachs, same thing. August Capital, same thing. And then there was my little fund, uh, Steinberg Capital at $10 million, which it, like you, it was an asterisk, but it returned our fund and, and led to a whole bunch of other great things. And, and it just happened. I was at a conference talking to someone and you, I didn't expect this, but Someone said to me, hey, we're doing this deal. It's the most exciting deal I've ever done. You want to be part of it? I'm like, yes, please. That would be amazing. And I dug in and I got to learn about it. I was like, this is incredible. And if I had been a bigger fund, I would have done more. Um, and it was back when it was a tough time in venture. So it ended up, the reason it's so important to me, it ended up bringing my fund back to life, really, because we had had a really tough run. And so it was a little bit of a pivot for me. It was a little bit about me being in the right place at the right time. Um, and, and just, again, working with really smart people. And, and, and it's fun because Seagate's still around and they're doing incredibly well. And it's, it's, it'll always have a very special place in my heart for, for helping me at a time when I, it was much needed. Oh, in all your investing career, were there any big misses? that you had an opportunity to invest in, but couldn't. So many big misses, are you <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, here's what I like to say about uh, misses, and, I, and it took me a while to really understand this. Someone said to me the other day, gosh, I, we gotta figure out this AI thing, I gotta get in now, it's clearly changing the world. What people always forget is that if you had bought Amazon in the first couple of years, you'd be up, you know, three digits X, right? If you had bought Google, same thing. So I missed a lot, right? Um, and sometimes I thought I did some that this was so clear, but I was too early. The company was too early. Timing's a really difficult thing. And what one of the things that is hard about, especially about being a small investor, an angel investor, is you don't really get uh, to go along for the ride actively. You know, you're a little bit the, the flotsam and jetsam on the ocean. And if the ocean's rising, you're rising. If it's not, if it's turbulent, you're, but you're not, you're not steering that ship. And, and the alignment of interests from an investor standpoint, the big guys really aren't that concerned about you, little guy, little angel. And so um, that's made me think about how I invest today and what I'm doing. But I, but I, had, a, I had a lot of misses. And I will say this too, that as much as I'd like to be able to tell you at any point in my career, this is the one that's going to be great. Constantly surprised. Surprised on the upside and surprised on the downside, meaning... I thought this was going to be the company that was going to return my fund. It failed. I never thought this little guy 
company would 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 be much of anything and then it became something amazing so the surprise factor and and, and that's borne out by the way in venture and i don't want to get off too much on a tangent but there's these a lot of venture funds do what's called an opportunity fund where they take their best deals and then double down and raise a, a separate vehicle to do that those funds you would expect to be great because they know right what's going to be good they're generally not so this is this is happening again in a, in a in a sort of different sense because we are seeing funds which are investing in early stage like seed and pre-seed raise opportunity funds for secondaries that's right uh, and i sort of tend to not believe that the same fund can make that good decision even though they think that they have more information but honestly Correct. The one yeah. that is discounted, maybe you don't have the information because you didn't invest in the seed and pre-seed. Well, so and I, you're close to it and you're biased. Biased, yeah. So I, I feel like it's sort of like the same cycle happening in a different form uh, with these unique secondary opportunity deals, which yeah. I think venture, people who run venture firms are not suited to do secondary funds. Like I think people from private equity may be a better, better people to do that. Yeah, um, that's right. And and you know, we the thing about the movie we're watching, it's repeated itself and will continue to repeat itself. I think and, that's a that's yeah, a go good ahead. segue for you to talk about, you know, what what are you seeing, you know, with all your experience with running two funds um, you know, very early on in, you know, the whole venture ecosystem, seeing the downs and ups and you know, the 100x's and you know even the zeros. What is happening right now? How do you see like you know, we have seen this incredible high in last, you know, 2021 where everything got peaked and then we're sort of, in a, uh, all the growth stocks went down and that is sort of defining the private market behavior. Sure. Um, so how, how are you seeing the state of, you know, venture capital, right? Well, look, it's messy. It's noisy. It's crowded. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm not as directly involved. Do I still, go ahead, do you want to say something? Uh, is is VC now too big so that the edge and the alpha that you can generate is much harder and much smaller? I think so. I think so. Um, it it look to be clear, technology is exploding. We are not at the end game, even close, right? Yeah. And to be clear, unlike when I was doing venture in the beginning. When you had one technology and then a next technology and a next technology, today you have an explosion of technologies, right? We didn't have that. You know, we had uh, personal computing and we had networking and we had the internet and we had serial kinds of big tidal waves. Now you've got this incredible everything from clean tech to med tech to real estate tech to AI to quantum computing to space tech and you know <laughs> so on right and so naturally uh, money is going to flow into that because they all promise these incredible things to change the world so it's not surprising but but you know we talked about timing earlier we have no idea on the timing of this stuff but people can make some really interesting big bets right now and that's going to bring money in my personal view as an investor hat with my investor hat on or stanford in this case um my personal view is that 
I'm not clever enough. I'm not full time enough. I'm not immersed enough. I'm not anything that I can make those kinds of decisions on a day-to-day basis. So I'm going to invest in a couple of broad-based funds because I still want exposure to the alpha that's possible in venture, but it is harder today. And there's going to be a lot of money lost. A lot of money is flowing in. And venture is so, it relies on the macro. It relies on a robust M&A market. It relies on a good IPO market. And if those things aren't there, well, your returns are not going to be as good. Period. End of story, right? So I'm still going to have exposure to it personally, but it's going to be less. Um, and because these ideas are so big right now that we're talking about, I go back to my comment about being able to, as a personal investor, invest later, whether it's a public opportunity or what have you, and maybe do great. Maybe you don't get the 10,000 to one, but hey, I'm okay with a thousand to one kind of situation. So for me, you know, look, I love venture to be clear. And I'm always going to wake up in the morning and read my various tech and venture newsletters. But I'm just not as active investing uh, directly like I used to be. I, I've saved that for something else that we can talk about later if we get there. But um, for me right now, venture is really tough. But of course, a, a ton of money is flowing in. How could it not? These are some ideas that are some of the biggest in the history of person kind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you somehow then also figured out to launch a wine company in all this uh, how, how 17 did that years ago how did you know, that people happen? go how long have you been doing this and i say in dog years yeah you know it's funny i went to business school as you know and we would do business case studies right and i think wine uh may be the the absolute worst business model i've ever encountered <laughs> Why is I mean, that? well, think about it, right? What, what are what what are things that make a bad business model? Well, having inventory is tough, right? But not only that, having inventory where you have to guess how much you will sell. You have really no idea. You're a farmer at the end of the day. So what happens when the hail comes, which that's real, by the way, or the Zonda wins? So... That's tough. You're in a regulated industry. That's another layer of complexity, right? I'm doing it in Argentina. Let's make it hard, both uh, from a, a country risk, political risk, and just 10,000 miles away. Uh, I'm in a, a category that is competitive. Be it's hyper competitive, right? When I started, there were X number of wineries. Today, there's more than two X number of wineries. When I started, there wasn't microbreweries, micro distilleries, non-alcoholic. So the the cannabis, like think about all the choices that people have today. When I started, there used to be a thing called loyalty. The new generation has no loyalty. They want to try the next cool thing. I think I could keep going, but I think you're starting to see why I think this is not the best business model. I like to say to people, you want to be in the wine business, make a lot of money somewhere else and buy great wine because it's quite enjoyable. 
but still you you know went ahead and decided to start one right how how did you right is that what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how did that well, happen i truly okay to 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 not completely make light of this look i did it for the following reasons uh, i was lucky enough to partner with a great winemaker who was in my business school class uh, he just his wine was ethereal great uh life changing i mean really got wine after i drank his wine argentina is seductive as hell if anyone goes down there you know let me know and i'm happy to give you some tips and tricks but most importantly i did a very simple back of the envelope calculation and that was i could buy land beautiful rich terroir soil down in Argentina for about 1/100th the cost of Napa. And so really I led with a with a purchase of land down there thinking that was going to be a great investment. Um and then I did get into the wine business which is hard. Uh the the land has done great, the wine business has done okay. Uh net net it's been an incredible experience. You know, I checked the box um and and you know in the last 2 weeks i've had four wine dinners and so i use the wine as kind of a way to bring people together and it works and you know people get connected ideas happen startups happen uh i get to meet incredible people so it has i've integrated it into my life and my investments And so it's it's actually been an incredible journey. That's a good segue to ask you about because we met in one of the events that you hosted. Right. And while I was researching I realized that you have this common thread of hosting events in some form or another. Uh you know I think you have the executive club then you have the top chef you have wood uh so you all through your career you kept a way to sort of bring people together. Talk to me like why do you do that what do you get out of it and how did it really help you in your career or yeah, in your personal life it is and this is a great example this is how we met that's how it helps me right i've been doing i'm just i i think i get it from my mother who would have a lot of i remember growing up and we would always have people in the house and there were parties going on and i'm a real people person as i said it goes back to a little bit my journalist roots i know everyone has a story and i know good things happen when uh well actually i'll tell you a very good when i get people together but i'll tell you a story i had a conversation yesterday with a gentleman who said to me i don't know if you remember me but 15 years ago i came to one of your events and i said to you at the time You have the best events I go to bar none. He said this to me yesterday. I said, "Oh, that's really nice." And and he said, "You said to me, don't tell me that, but tell my team, tell my admin who helped me with it." And it's always been a team effort. Um but this person who said that to me said, "You know, I hear you're working on this new fund. I remember what you did back then." I heard about your new fund from this other person. Can I invest? So, 15 years, I haven't talked to that person in a long time, and yet it comes around full circle and we had this great catch-up and conversation. 
that's just one small example. We've had marriages from this thing. We've had, and, and, and by the way, these, these events, I love them. They're kind of exhausting. I've been in San Diego, Salt Lake City, Seattle, and San Francisco doing these events in the last couple of weeks. And I still do them because it's a little bit of my karmic service of bringing people together. And I do them without really an agenda. You know, people always say, well, don't you want to have a speaker? Or don't you want to have some, are you selling something? And no, it's really about just bringing people together. Uh, and it helps me stay relevant. It helps me be in the flow of conversation. I'm always learning. Uh, so it, what I've always tried to do is combine my interests. Interest of learning, interest of bringing people together, interest in the wine, interest in sharing ideas, etc., etc. And so that's why I do them. And it's funny, I hadn't thought about this, but back in the day when I left Microsoft, I mean, we're talking a long time ago, I would hold these events called Schmooze Fest in Seattle, and they got so big, we had to stop because I couldn't find places. There were a thousand people at several of them. And so it has always been something I've done. Uh, and I, and it's just, it's kind of my superpower. If you know, I think it's important to figure out where you're, where, where you are gravitating towards and what you're good at and what you can do to help people. And I've always embraced the connection part every single day. Almost I get someone emailing me saying, Hey, you know, this person, would you be willing to connect me? And if I can do little favors like that, that makes me feel good and hopefully helps people. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, that that's one of the reasons I started the podcast, because I'm interested in talking to interesting people. Right. And it's a good way to meet interesting people and sort of do it consistently. And you're not falling off the tracks and you can continue your curiosity and learn new things like if I want to start a wine company next, which I would not, but I could, I know that I could uh, talk to John. Yeah, I'll, I know I'll talk to John and maybe he'll convince me to, you know, start a wine company, even though I'm not convinced, right? Again, happy so, to open a bottle with you. Don't do it. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly the same reason I started this. And especially in a remote world, right? It's much harder to sort of build a network that you would have otherwise built in a you know in-person first uh, world where you have you know uh, even if you are in an in-person world you're sort of limiting your directions in which you meet like let's say you're working at microsoft you're only meeting people who are working at microsoft you're not people you're not meeting other people who are doing other interesting things so right. that's one of my uh, sort of you have your events podcast is my sort of platform for doing that um but Crazy. i think it's also now a good segue to talk about uh, your next thing that you're doing while everyone is you know going the right way into venture capital you're moving away from it and going to start a search fund uh, which honestly I didn't know what a search fund was uh, until I met you and uh, started uh, doing some research around it so why don't you go ahead and you know introduce what a search fund is and tell us you know why you're doing it now sure well, I think that is a good segue. I talked a little bit about my concerns about venture, about my capabilities and abilities and willingness to do direct venture investing these days. Um, and so I have been thinking about what are the things I can do 
given where I am in life, my interests in life, being a dad, I have a 15-year-old daughter and I want to make sure that I'm present for her um, and not working 70 hours a week like I used to. And so what are, what are some of the things I can do uh, in that realm? So search funds kind of check the boxes for me. It's exciting on so many levels. It's an extraordinary asset class. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about them, but I would encourage, I don't know if you have liner notes, but I would encourage your audience to look up the Stanford Search Fund Primer and the Stanford Search Fund Results. And in about 20 minutes, it will give you an amazing overview of what search funds are. But let me tell you here what they are. My professor at Stanford, just one special person by the name of Irv Grossbeck, uh, invented search funds. And what is a search fund? And this, by the way, was back in 1984. Um, and we didn't know much about them coming out, but they intrigued me back then. Uh, I ended up in ventures we talked about, but I am now coming back to search funds a little bit late. You want to know the what? You said, what are the ones you missed? Maybe I missed the whole search thing because it's been an incredible run. Search funds are very simply where, and I'm talking about a traditional search fund model as talked about in the Stanford Primer, is where an MBA student from a top business school raises a small pool of cash called a search fund. I don't love the name because it's not really a fund, but raises a pool of cash to search for, acquire, and run a small business. So instead of taking what would be a typical job out of business school, like at a McKinsey or a JP Morgan or a Google, what, what have you, they take the entrepreneurial route of spending up to two years to search for a two to five million dollar EBITDA somewhat boring business and the businesses are everything from airplane parts to manufacturer furniture wraps to porta potties to senior living homes to dental clinics right you get it's a very broad set of type of companies and it's geographically very dispersed and the incredible thing about it is it is a playbook that has been so well refined and thought through that over 40 years, and you can look at the study, the average net annual return is over 35%. And nothing comes close to this that I'm aware of. Maybe some of your listeners know, but if you look at the stock market, it's been around seven or eight percent a year for that period. You look at private equity venture somewhere in the 11, 12, 13 over that same period. And so this is an astonishing number. You know, it's better than Warren Buffett and coming from Omaha. And, and, you know, if you'd invested in Warren from the beginning, you'd be rich beyond rich. And this is actually compounded better. So so how can that be? And, and especially how can that be, people often say, you're taking a, a 32, 34-year-old MBA student who's never run a company probably. Uh, may, these days, sometimes it's a team, but how can they go into an industry they don't really know that much about and run a company that they've never done? And it's because search funds have created, as I mentioned, this playbook, whereby the searcher spends up to two years looking, learning about industries, 
doing what we're doing, interviewing lots of owners, talking to owners, learning about what it takes to be successful, and ultimately surrounds themselves with a set of investors who are completely aligned with the goal of success and who are very much roll up the sleeve, get in there and be mentoring, coaching the entrepreneur into success. And because it's a smaller company, it's not like venture. Come back to this conversation. It's not like venture where everybody's piling on and valuations are kind of in the crazy orbit. And it's not where you're competing for deals as much. And it's more, okay, let's go in with a very reasonable valuation. If we're talking that, it's generally around three, four, five times EBITDA multiple. And growing this thing to where the there's a layer of private equity firms who have funds, larger funds, who want to buy at double the multiple if you can get it big enough for them to put into their portfolio. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yes. So, again, it's at the end of the day, I love it. If you remember the things I've talked about already today, it's super entrepreneurial. I get to I get to share hopefully I have some wisdom, share my learnings over the years. The entrepreneur they they now have changed the name from search fund to ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition. And that's what it is. It's it's acquiring something that you can run and it's about to have a moment. It is having a moment. Like you said you didn't know about it before this. I have literally explained this now to over a thousand people. And I and people are now sending me articles. I guess Bloomberg did one recently. Probably 25 people sent me that article. And so I think you're going to hear a lot more about this. And but it's still relative to the opportunity set a drop in the bucket. Because the baby boomers are aging out and there's millions of businesses that they want to sell, they want to preserve their legacy, they want to take care of their employees, but this is not an efficient market. This is not that active of a market. It's so small and under the radar. So I think though more and more people and not just MBA students, that's my focus on the traditional search fund, but mid-career folks are going to say I don't want to be in the corporate grind. I want to go buy a business. And so there's going to be a bunch of it's in venture in the early days, it was a bunch of guys on Sand Hill Road who sat around and said, "I got a deal, you got a deal." Search has been that way for 30 years. That's changing. More money is coming in. It is getting uh more schools are teaching it. You know, a decade ago, two schools taught it, Stanford and Harvard. Now 20 of the top business schools teach it. So it is having a moment. But again, it's really exciting because it's truly entrepreneurial and and for me what makes it especially exciting is yeah, the asset class is in crushing it and doing great and you know, it's something I want in my own personal portfolio, but it's also a way for women, underrepresented folks, people of color. There's no glass ceiling if you're the CEO, right? You go buy a company and I think there's going to be more and more opportunity for folks who maybe don't feel like they can work through the corporate ladder program. 
and that's exciting. And so anyway, you can probably tell by the way I'm talking about this that I'm very excited about. It. I just came back from the Stanford Search Fund Conference, 600 people sold out wait list. I'm going to the Harvard one. There's one at Booth, there's one at Duke, there's one at MIT. So again, there's now it's now being taught and and um done on six continents around the world. So it's international. So it's really it's uh, for people who don't know about it, it's really an exciting moment. So the uh, the fund that you're raising is going to be investing in uh people who are going to do their own search fund as they originally called, right? Or are you going to buy because F F R naturally has to have a portfolio, right? Yeah, so yeah, it like first of all, I want to be really clear I'm not soliciting here and I'm not asking people to invest. I'm just explaining and answering your questions what I'm doing. Um but what I would say is I personally my journey was about well, over 5 years ago, I knew I wanted to look at this asset class and I started to invest in it and get to know it and get to know all the players and go to these conferences and i realized that access was really hard it's it's a bit of a insiders game changing a little bit but it's hard and there's again search fund is not a fund so i call them searchers so what has happened is the asset class has matured is there are now funds like venture funds were for the startups there are now funds investing in the searchers Okay. And they're doing a great job. And they're and often they're people who had successful searches and exits and they raise a fund and they can go work with the searchers because they've done it. I love that mentoring piece of this. And so what we're doing at Agonhound is we're investing in some of the top funds that invest in the searchers. Uh because I I found that what I hope to have happen at the end of the day is we're going to have 80 to 120 small american businesses run by really smart ambitious hungry gritty entrepreneurs out of the top business schools and and uh i wake up every day just smiling that i get to do this cuz it's so much fun it's amazing um so you you mentioned that you know it is it's it used to be or still is a little bit of an insider's game if Silicon Valley is located on Sand Hill Road at that point of time like who who are the insiders in the search fund game Well it's really been interesting in the history of search fund there's been about 3 billion dollars invested that's a small number over 40 years right I mean there are 3 billion dollar funds in venture just to yeah. give you right you understand what I'm saying so so it it's not big it's not a big asset class now having said that in the last 5 years probably a quarter has been invested just to give you the ramp okay so there there's some funds out there that have been on fund 3 4 5 not that many but they're the ones who we're looking at because they have a track record they know how to do this they one of the cool things about search and one of the things that excites me is a lot of the funds actually teach have have a partner or two teaching search or ETA at the top business school. So not only do they get first look at these students, right? But they get to coach, mentor and invest in them. 
And I always say, well, gosh, I wish I had been the, the computer science professor at Stanford teaching Larry and Sergey and saying, oh, by the way, I've got a fund. Can, can I invest in this thing called Google? Well, these professors at Stanford, Harvard, MIT, blah, 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 are teaching the playbook. And a few students raise their hand and say, I, I want to do this. And the professors often invest in them and, and they have funds. So it's a very interesting sourcing model, right? And one that is quite, that's done quite well. I guess I'll just say it that way. Interesting. Um, so we're almost at the end of our conversation and I ask all my guests a couple of common quick questions sure. and I want to quickly go through them. Um, so first question, who are the mentors who shaped your career? Who are the mentors in my life? Yeah. Oh gosh, so many. Uh, you know, my mom was a huge influence and mentor to me uh, in many, many ways, for sure. Um, I am lucky at Microsoft to have a couple people that guided me through that. You know, I was a bit of a searcher at Microsoft because I had never worked in a corporate situation like that. So I had mentors there. Um, I, Irv Grossbeck, who is the godfather of search, who's on my board of advisors, is a mentor. I have, I believe so strongly that everybody should create uh, some kind of mentor board, board of advisors. I have been extremely lucky. You know, Warren Buffett, actually, we knew him growing up, but we don't know him well. I'm not going to say that. Was a, has always been a mentor. I read his annual report every year. He's a mentor. I get inspiration in so many ways. It, to me, this the path of entrepreneurship, the path of trying to create uh, a new way, it, it's very hard to do it alone. So mentorship is super important to me. I love the question. Uh, what are your favorite books and are you reading anything interesting right now? Oh, gosh. So if your audience doesn't know about Libby, Libby is a uh, app for borrowing library books. They let you borrow for 21 days. I've always got three books on it. And they always range from some kind of, you know, life hacking book. I was just reading Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive. Uh, I'm reading this beautiful book on the wondrous nature of nature. Um, I, I read a lot. I listen to books a lot. I'm an obsessive step counter, which I've got to get over, but I at one point was averaging for several years, 25,000 steps a day. So I have lots of time to listen to podcasts and to books. Uh, books are hugely important to me. What are your As favorite podcasts? My favorite podcast. Oh my gosh. Well, Peter Atia has one. Um, I actually love Scott Galloway's. Oh, uh, Art yeah. Prof G. Yeah, Prof G. Yeah, uh, Prof G's good. Yeah, really good. There's several, by the way, on search funds. If people do uh, a Bing search, I always like to say a Bing search, um, you'll find several good ones to learn more. Um, yeah, so I'm, you know, I, I have a community of folks. We share great podcasts because it's hard to get through them, right? And so uh, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. So if you have some good ones offline, let's let's do a little exchange. I'm happy to yeah. share. 
I'm always constantly looking for a good podcast because I, that's one of my hacks of learning new things because I think podcast is yeah. is an yeah. interesting knowledge source. Um, what, what advice would you give to a new college grad who's either you know thinking about getting into investing or starting a company? Be curious. Be curious. Ask a lot of questions. Go try things. You know, find things. Uh, honestly, you know that everyone says follow your passion. Yeah, that's part of it. But find things where you're going to have mentors built in, where you're going to be around people smarter than you. Be around people who are going to inspire you. Right? And then, you know, it's okay it's okay to fail. There's nothing wrong with it as long as you get up and go to it again. And people just graduating, especially in a time where people are going to live longer, I'm not saying dilly-dally. I'm not saying take several years off and do nothing. I'm saying you have such an opportunity to take risks and to fail and to get up that I would say go do things that are I think Ken Burns at this great Ken Burns the um, documentary filmmaker had a has a sign that you know take on ideas that scare you. And I think that's right. Because if they're attracting you and they scare you, that means there's some juice in there, there's some energy in there, there's some attraction. And if it's scary, it means you're not sure you can really do it, but it's appealing. Like that's that's what I would say. Well, that I think that's a great great note to end the conversation. Thanks, John. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your experience with us. I loved it. Thanks again, and, and let's share some podcasts. Sure. All right.